Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And welcome to the show. We'll be looking at a very popular bird today. Yes, birds. Oh, shocking. Back to birds. I know, it's terrible. It's a special bird though. It's okay. It is quite a good one. Wow. It's a bit too popular for my taste, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. We'll start, as usual, with our latest wildlife sightings. And so, what have you seen, Vic? Anything good? Uh, frogs, frogs, frogs and more frogs. And a lot of frog spawn. Actually, I've, I've <laughs> over the last few weeks, I've been watching the antics of the frogs in my pond. We have one male frog, which has been named the Frog Father. Uh, just simply because <laughs> he, he he's pretty much the only male. Well, he is the only male I've seen in the pond. So he's fertilised everything. And we have seven or eight clumps this year, which is a record for our little pond. But he's actually been guarding the spawn for two weeks, which I've never seen before. I've seen him guard it like overnight and maybe into the next day, but never for two weeks, which is really quite unusual. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting to watch his behaviour from afar, shall we say. And most of my spawn now is is actually it's at that stage where it's kind of hatching out but it's not hatched out fully yet so some of it's still developing our spawn was a good two weeks earlier this year so whereas we normally seem to be a little bit behind everyone else because we're quite high up ours have been and gone and that's it it's all now nicely developing in the pond and i'm seeing people that are just getting reports of frog spawn now so it seems quite weird but there we go and other than that not really a sighting as such, but more of a hearing. The the foxes have been at it again, making an awful <laughs> lot of noise. But other than that, that's kind of it. I've not really been out and about. Uh, but how about you, Neil? Yeah, I've done a, a few bits. I've uh, actually managed to have a successful day's wildlife photography. I went to Sheppey and found some shorelarks I've been trying to see since, or before Christmas, I think it was, or just after Christmas. Finally got there parked up walked about a mile half mile along a beach tide was right got there and they were there and i had the beach to myself for all of 10 minutes got the shore larks and then they took off and then i spent three hours looking for them again and they'd gone into a nearby field that i hadn't quite fully explored three birders turned up after i've been back to the car got a snack and they managed to they were on a gravel path that I'd walked halfway along but saw a tractor come the other way so stopped walking down it yeah and then spent the rest of the day photographing filming them there was loads of dog walkers there most of them were well behaved to be fair going you know either side of the strand line where the birds were but the day finished when the light was just perfect I got a few shots off because they were darting between all this stones and logs and all stuff on the shoreline that you know it's quite hard to pick them out because they never stop moving and i heard a woman say oh yeah that bloke yeah, he's probably photographing the shorelarks so i thought oh brilliant you know they know what i'm doing so they'll leave me alone nope they let their four dogs run right past me and flush them and they disappeared properly that time and filming a b-roll and scenic shots to go with the video eventually i'll edit together and someone let their massive great dog come and slobber all over me and thankfully not my camera because I stopped it and I was friendly to the dog so oh, hello dog you know it's not dog's fault and the owner was giving me a death stare for letting her dog run up to me <laughs> which was quite slightly disturbing actually but never mind and then she let her dog run back to me again which I, and gave a death stare again so that was quite fun fun with dog because it always is with me <laughs> but like I said before the majority were you know respecting the wildlife and not letting it chase it so that was good I've got frogs in my pond too they've spawned two three days ago yeah, they actually stayed active when I shone the torch on them. Some of you might have seen my post on my Pond Man Twitter 
of them croaking, well, not croaking, whatever that weird, what's it described as, Vic, a motorcycle in the distance is one, one I heard. I don't know what you call the sound, really, sort of a, a weird groaning, I suppose. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of bit. like a, a a very low, subtle, I don't know, rumbling almost, isn't it? Rumbling, it's not very yeah. loud at all. No, it is. I don't think it's just not very loud, or it's just sort of at the edge of our hearing, or, or whatever it is, but it doesn't sound loud, does it? And finally, I did a newt survey last night, it was actually, and it was a site I've only been to briefly, and it was mostly mud. <laughs> the site is always wet, it's the only thing that stopped it being built on really, so thank God for that. A few ponds, dog disturbed pond, but I'll skip past that. There was a few palmates in one, and a frog and some more spawn, and a few palmates in another one, and a couple of little leaf case caddisflies crawling around, so that was pretty cool to see. Other than that, just the usual stuff at work and just uh, looking forward to spring really taking hold now yeah I, I see rumours of some brighter days ahead which I will be very thankful for I have a pile of drawings that are sitting on my art table right now that I can't do because it's too dark yeah oh you need a bit of light, proper sunlight for that don't you I do I've got, a, got that female cat snake to finish the green toad to finish started a dark-eared tree frog yeah plenty to do yeah i know that feeling <laughs> <laughs> well before we get on to our main topic uh we've got a couple of thank yous i've uh, got a thank you to kevin potter for becoming a member on our buy me a coffee page so thank you very much for doing that kevin and we had another donor as well who stayed anonymous so thanks for buying us coffee and you know if you want to support the podcast please feel free to go on our buy me a coffee page it's on the podcast website the link yeah thanks very much for you that have done that in the past as well it really does mean a lot to us um to have for you and not just listening in in but also supporting supporting us with the podcast as well so thank you if we get enough of them we'll start getting this professionally edited and out a bit more regularly that's the that's the hope but shall we move on to our main topic victoria let's talk barn owls yeah, it's another owl episode, and actually our, our previous one did really well, didn't it? It was really popular. When we did I think it's our most popular episode. Tawny Owls. And that must have been okay, over at least about a year ago. Yeah, I think it was last February or January or something we did it, because it was the time they were calling. But we're doing this one now because it they'll be finding nest boxes at this time. As you'll, oh, <gasps> spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm going to kick off with a description, although I don't really think the barn owl needs much description, does it? Let, let's be honest. It's probably our most iconic and recognisable owl. Now, interestingly, these owls, we know them as barn owls, that, that is their name, but they do go by other names. They're known as ghost owls, church owls, and even death owls. But I'll talk more about this a little bit later when we have a chat about folklore. They're approximately 33 to 39 centimetres in height, weighing in at around 250 to 350 grams with wingspans of around 80 to 95 centimetres and the females are actually larger than the males which is is pretty standard actually amongst birds of prey. In the wild they have an average lifespan of around about four years and we've got about 4,000 breeding pairs in the UK and in Europe there's somewhere between 110,000 and 220,000 breeding pairs so yeah it's quite a widespread owl. It's actually the most widely distributed species of owl in the world interestingly um, it, it's found you know kind of right across you know, many many areas they have quite a varied habitat as well so 
I know traditionally they're kind of associated with farmland and, and maybe grasslands, but they can also be found in marine, intertidal and wetland areas as well. So basically if there's suitable prey and nesting areas, you know, that they can be found in those areas as well. So what do they look like? Well, I think for anyone that's seen a bar now, you can't really mistake it for anything else. They have a distinctive white heart-shaped facial disc, and this facial disc actually helps them to collect sound. And they have pale white breast feathers. Now, most females have spotted chests, where the males have mainly white chests. So if you see them like really close, it, it's one way to possibly tell males and females apart. The feathers on the head, back and outer wings have this beautiful kind of mottled golden buff and grey, almost kind of bluey grey sometimes uh, colour to them. They have really powerful feet with strong long toes and sharp talons for catching prey. And one of their talons actually has a comb on it which is used to groom the facial disc. Their light bodies and soft feathers help the owl to fly almost silently. And they have a very distinctive call as well. They're famous for being good hunters. And what they're hunting is mainly field voles. So according to the British Barn Owl Trust, the diet is 45% field vole, 20% common shrew, 15% wood mice, and they'll also take house mice, brown rats, bank voles, and pygmy shrews. But obviously it's going to vary on where they are and you know the habitat they're in as well to some degree. They also rarely take amphibians, so they're popular with Vic for that I imagine, and vertebrates, other birds, and even bats sometimes. But I think they take that less often than some other species do. Certainly less than tawny owls do, put it that way. Another thing that can affect what they're eating is the population of fill voles. So obviously that's their most popular prey, but the populations of fill voles is well known and you know quite infamous I suppose for varying from year to year depending on you know how well they bred the year before and the conditions and how harsh the winter is and stuff like that so in years with lots of field voles they're going to eat more field voles and years with less field voles they're going to eat less field voles and more of the others but that can also mean if it's a poor year for field voles that there's a higher mortality rate among the chicks and the fledglings and even the adults so it can be bad news if there's a bad vole year as they call it so how do they hunt well they generally hunt in dusk and dawn, you know, they call it crepuscular, and also at night, so they can be regarded as nocturnal as well, I suppose. You can see them hunting in the day. This is especially the case when they've got lots of young to feed or something stopped them hunting the night before. And they do have good eyesight, so they can see, well, I say good eyesight, they've got good eyesight at night, so they can see very well in almost dark. They obviously can't see when it's pitch black because there's no light, and they have huge, great big eyes like most owls do and like most owls the eyes take up a large percentage of the skull which means they have very little room for a brain so as we mentioned in the tawny owl episode the wise old owl is a you know <laughs> something of a misleading comment shall we say now their retinas are optimized for low light which means they can see very well in the dark but it means they have a less optimized eye for resolutions they can't see as clearly as they sound like a kestrel which is uh, obviously optimized for seeing movement during the daytime now they famously have 3d hearing and they do this by their ears being asymmetrically placed so one is further forward and you know they're not the same height on the head and this means that when something makes a sound it takes slightly longer to get to one ear than the other ear and their brain's very clever and they can get a 3d picture of where that animal is so they can tell what direction it's in, what height it is in relation to them, and also exactly how far away it is, 
which is very handy when you're hunting something that quite likes living in long grass. So typically they're going to be hunting around rough grassland, but as Vic says, they will hunt in other habitats. They also hunt around farm buildings, which can have a bad side effect, which I'll mention later on. But they've done various experiments with them. Uh, I did do my standard diving into the literature, the scientific literature that is, and there was so much stuff I didn't know where to start. So I've just picked a few bits out. One experiment showed that they can locate prey in the pitch black, but they need to be aware of where everything is. So, you know, they had to have looked around the enclosure first, then they make it pitch black and they will still land on the prey. I think there was a natural world that actually showed that on as well. So Vic's already mentioned those soft feathers that allow them to fly through the air without being heard by their prey. But that also helps them, of course, when they're trying to hear the prey as well. When it comes to actually catching their prey, they use their large talons, so the big claws on their toes. When they catch the prey, they'll squeeze tight with their feet and those talons will you know, obviously pierce and crush the poor animal. Then they can come in with their hooked beak as well to finish it off if they need to. And in the end, they can just swallow their prey whole most of the time because it's usually small enough to do so. So, yeah, if you're a small mammal, a barn owl is not something you want to be seeing above you. So, as I've mentioned, you typically find them over rough grassland where their prey lives. When they're hunting, they'll be flying low over the grass, you know, below three metres. And when they hear something, they'll stop and hover. And that allows them to pinpoint exactly where their prey is. They'll look for it. But even if they can't see it, often their hearing is good enough that they'll know at least roughly where it is. They'll dive down head first. Quite often if they're flying along, they'd flip their wings upside down to lose height and go straight down. And then just before they get to the prey, their talons come forward, open up, ready to grab the prey. They land on it and kill it pretty quickly after that. They have another method of hunting, which I have heard called post hunting, where they basically sit on a post uh, in a productive spot. That can be obviously a post, like a fence post, or it can be a dead tree or a branch or something like that that has you know, a clear line of sight. They'll wait and listen and look, and when they hear or see something, they'll dive down and catch the prey. This has the advantage of saving them wasting energy flying around, uh, which is especially important in winter when there's less prey around and you know, or prey numbers are low generally. It might not necessarily be winter, and they need to save energy. And there was an experiment done on another technique they use called leap and strike. And this is where they actually are on the ground. So this might be after they've just missed some prey and it's still nearby. And they'll take off, do a few wing flaps, and then they'll do their normal dive down on top of the prey to catch it. Now they measured the forces involved in this and a owl of uh, just over 0.2 kilograms or 200 grams pounced with a force of 15 times its body weight, which for a 20 gram mouse would be the equivalent of an 80 kilogram man being squashed by the weight of a 12 ton truck. Which sounds to you and me like enough to kill it, but apparently the force alone, it's not enough to kill it outright. Obviously the talons finish it off, but they think the reason they've developed this ability is so when they're diving down, sometimes they'll be listening out for prey you know, below some thick grass, leaf litter, or maybe even snow in winter, and that gives them the force to penetrate down through it. And they also think it explains their distribution because it stops where you start getting very wintry conditions and snow above seven centimetres. And they think it might be that's the limitation is that they can't catch anything below seven centimetres of snow because they can't get enough force to dive through it and catch the prey effectively. Now, in terms of how much they eat, they'll take three to four different prey items a night. And of course, if they're feeding chicks, they might need the same again for every chick. We've mentioned those feathers twice, those amazing fluffy feathery edge to the feathers. I think that makes sense, feathery edge to feathers. <laughs> you know what I mean, you know, all fluffy. And that means when the air flows over it, it doesn't make a noise. That does have a disadvantage because that means 
they've lost a lot of the weatherproofing in order to have that adaptation so they don't do so well in rain in fact they rarely hunt in rain because they can get quite waterlogged also the rain and wind means their hearing's impaired so if you have a few nights with bad weather of windy rainy weather they can start to suffer and start to starve and maybe even die if it goes on too long that's why i remember quite a few years ago we had a horrifically wet winter here in in somerset and it, it went on for quite a long time and there was real concerns because actually it was at that time when some of the barn owls were starting to have chicks and everything was i mean it was the year that a lot of somerset was actually underwater we had horrific flooding and it it was you know it was a hugely bad news for the barn owls so many barn owls perished that year and, and so many chicks perished that year because so i said they just they can't hunt yeah it's not good news for them or and a lot of other animals like kestrels when that happens but another fact that a lot of people know about owls is all about the owl pellets so for those that don't know owls along with a lot of other birds like kestrels and a few others will eat a vole or whatever it is whole it'll sit in the stomach they'll digest all the nice juicy bits and then they will cough up in a pellet all the hair, bone and claws and hard bits like that. And interestingly, looking at the ID chart for pellets a few years ago, I noticed that the barn owl has the biggest pellets, but it's not the biggest owl, it's sort of like the middle-sized one, which I always found quite fascinating. Obviously, it's bigger than little owl's pellets, but dwarfs like a tawny owl's pellets. I don't know what that says about them. Maybe they're a bit more greedy. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe just have bigger pellets. Who knows? But what's really cool about an owl pellet, as some people listening will no doubt have done, is you can put it in water and break it down and you get all the fragments of the voles and mice or whatever else it's been eating so a you can see what that owl's been eating but also it gives you a snapshot of what small animals are in the area so it'll tell you what mammals are around you'll know if there's voles or shrews because you'll be able to identify the skulls and maybe some of the femurs or something like that also you might pick up the old frog or lizard that you might not know is in the habitat so it can be useful as a small mammal survey <laughs> in a way so now i'm going to move on to the breeding now they start breeding from a year old and the males start courting the females in winter they can even pair up and be in boxes sometimes in winter it's believed that females go around looking for the nest sites and then a male will take up point nearby and start calling to her now there's loads of stats on you know, how many days and stuff before this but rather go into all of it i'll pick out the one that caught my eye and you'll <laughs> you'll hear why so the mating starts three weeks before they start egg laying and it can happen 70 times a day <laughs> but on average it only lasts about 30 seconds so you know you know i didn't feel too intimidated um no <laughs> <laughs> what if you picked up that fact now <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know moving swiftly on they nest in cavities such as holes in mature trees and of course because of their habitat preference for hunting they're going to favor like a big old oak in a hedgerow overlooking some rough grass uh, grassland god god suddenly went northern <laughs> grassland or meadow or something like that that's going to have lots of prey species in um and well in news that will shock everyone they also like to nest inside old buildings and farm buildings like barns surely not i don't know who would know well mind you actually with some animal names that would be <laughs> some things are called the most ridiculous things aren't they you know slow worm it's not a worm and it ain't slow they also seem to take well to barn owl nest boxes it was believed i think it well pretty much proved in some areas that the limiting factor on population was lack of nesting sites which probably explains why now it's believed about 25 percent of breeding barn owls are using barn owl boxes so that's really helped in some areas you know in some landscapes 
It's really helped them out and boosted the populations. So there are records of them breeding in every month of the year, but usually they breed in spring. Typically they lay four to six eggs, which are incubated for 32 days. Unlike a lot of birds, they incubate as soon as they lay the first egg. Now this is quite common in birds of prey, but it does mean that the earliest laid egg will hatch two days before the next egg and two rows from the next egg. So the one that hatches last could actually hatch sort of a week later, which leads to a very big difference in size to chicks. Obviously, the first ones had a week's more food than the, the latest hatched one. It's quite common for one or two of the eggs to fail to hatch. So typically, there's four chicks to rear for the parents. So when they first hatch, they're completely naked, no feathers, and they have to be brooded for the first three weeks by the female because they can't regulate their own body temperature. And in this time, only the male can hunt because obviously she's got to stay there and keep them warm. But after this, the female goes out and goes hunting too because obviously bigger chicks need more food. So off she goes, getting more food. They favour feed of the larger and older chicks too, so that makes them even larger and you end up with the youngest and smallest chicks not getting fed quite so much. So if there's any sort of food shortage, they quite often starve. And this is kind of a standard tactic really with birds of prey. The smaller chicks are pretty much a backup or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Vic? It's like a contingency plan. Yeah, they're a contingency plan and that just guarantees that some young fledge. So you put most of your eggs into one or two chicks and then you've got the others just in case. And there have been records, I think it actually happened on Spring Watch, didn't it? There was a load of complaints by oversensitive parents. The youngest chick died and then the parents came in and fed it to the older chicks. Yeah, waste not, whatnot. Yeah, there's been quite a few reports of the older barn owl chicks eating the younger ones, shall we say. But that's the sort of thing going to happen if you have a load of rainy nights, because the chicks are going to start getting hungry. But bizarrely, there's records of the chicks feeding each other. The parent comes in and drops some prey, and one will feed food to the other one, which is interesting. But by seven weeks, they've reached the stage where normally no more are going to die. And they start getting ready to leave the nest. They start doing wing flapping and, you know, that kind of thing. And... They start to leave at about 10 weeks, but they'll hang around for a while, getting fed by the adult. About 13 weeks or so, they'll start dispersing off into the surrounding area, really, before possibly being chased away by the adults. Although, interestingly, adult territories can overlap quite a bit. You'd think they'd be strictly territorial, but there's quite a lot of overlap. And they're generally around three to five kilometres from the main nest site. Obviously, it gets bigger in winter and can be smaller in summer if there's lots of food around, with more nests closer together. Now, some pairs will actually have a second brood, typically in another nest site, but it can be the same nest site. And nest sites do get used, again, between years. In fact, the inverted commas nest is quite often a load of old owl pellets from the year before, and a female sort of makes a little depression in to make a comfy place to sit and lay her eggs. But, of course, barn owls don't have it all their own way. They may be predators but there's threats to them as well. Other than hunger, they can be poisoned. As I mentioned, they quite often feed around farm buildings and farm buildings quite often have rat poison down because, you know, rats can cause problems for farmers. And rather shockingly, in 2015, they did a survey of barn owls and 94% of them had traces of some sort of rodenticide in them. And in 2019, it wasn't much better. It was still 87%. That's still better than kestrels that had 100% though in 2015. It's not really known exactly what the effect. Obviously some will die from that. In fact, it's been implicated in the decline of kestrels in recent years. Another threat from us silly humans is cars. Barn owls are quite often hit by cars on busy roads. This is especially a problem when food is scarce, you know, sometimes like winter, and they live in an environment with lots of highly industrialised or intensively farmed fields with not much suitable hunting habitat. And then you get a road with a one metre margin of rough grassland. 
and that's the only place they can hunt and they fly across a road when a car's coming or a truck yeah there's actually a roundabout off the 303 that i've when i've been driving home from talks like late at night you know i'm talking like 10 11 o'clock at night there's like this one particular roundabout i've seen barn owls hunting you know, almost every time I've driven past it, and it's a roundabout on the 303. Which is one of the busiest West Country roads going, isn't it? So Yeah. There's no records of barn owls eating other owls and raptors. A barn owl has been recorded twice in southern England eating little owls, and they know this from the pellets, but they themselves have also been predated by other owls. So eagle owls have been known to eat barn owls now they're not or let's not say they're not native to uk that's a bit of a controversial issue but there are a few in the uk now so who knows if they're eating barn owls but there's also records of goshawks taking out barn owls and buzzards have been known to take them as well and if you go into north america there's a record of a golden eagle eating a barn owl there's also records from france of stone martins raiding the nest but it was a tiny percentage it was two or three out of over a thousand records kestrels will compete for nest space they'll overlap in territory and i think there's a bit of separation in their feeding here because obviously the kestrel is going to be hunting in the day and the barn owl is going to be mainly at night but if they do overlap and hunt in the daytime the kestrel has been known to mob and actually steal prey from the barn owls which is pretty cool there's a few pictures online of a kestrels and barn owl both locked onto the same bit of prey and the kestrel trying to rob the barn owl so pretty much a summary of their breeding and hunting and Vic, you're going to cover their folklore. Yeah, well, I, I think, to be honest, I, we can't really talk about owls and not talk about folklore, can we? Really, they're, they're an animal that is... They crop up in folklore across the world. And there, there's a lot out there, and I've tried to keep it predominantly to England and the UK. I'd say, actually, of all the owls, folklore surrounding the barn owl is probably the best recorded. And being such a widespread owl throughout the world, it's hardly surprising that they feature in mythologies. And these are actually split over whether they're a good omen or a bad omen. Some view them as a good sign, others view them as as a bad sign. And also it depends if you dream about owls as well. There's so much interesting stuff out there. Now, their silent flight, piercing shriek and frequent sightings around graveyards have actually given rise to some of the other names that are used for them, including the ghost owl, church owl, and even death owl. And you can certainly understand the ghost owl, you know, this this white bird that, you know, you see a fleeting glimpse of in the middle of the night. Church owl, churchyards and graveyards can actually be incredibly rich hunting grounds for owls in general, which is why they're, they're quite often seen there. But in much of English folklore, the barn owl has a sinister reputation, and this is most likely as a result of it being nocturnal and an animal of darkness. And traditionally, darkness is associated with death. And indeed, it was believed that the call of an owl as it flew past a sick person meant imminent death. Now, during the 18th and 19th centuries, poets William Wordsworth and Robert Blair both used the barn owl as their favourite bird of doom. This is a little bit harsh if you ask me, but there we go. And in the 12th century, a Kentish preacher... Odo of Cheriton offered the following as an explanation as to why the barn owl is nocturnal. The owl has stolen a rose, which was a prize awarded for beauty, and the other birds punished the barn owl by only allowing it to come out at night. Which is a very interesting and beautiful description. Now, barn owls have also been used to predict the weather, with a screeching owl signalling cold weather or a coming storm, and if it was heard during bad weather, it meant a change in the weather was coming. But it's just it's not just folklores where barn owls are well documented. They're also mentioning quite a lot of the folk cures or like medicinal uses, if you like. From owl eggs to treat alcoholism and improve eyesight to owl broth being prescribed to treat children suffering from whooping cough. 
Now, you know, obviously we don't advise any of this at all. It's just you know, stuff that was used. You know, we're talking hundreds of years ago. But I think whatever you believe, owls and especially barn owls embody wisdom, protection, and are also seen as harbingers of death and disease. So there's, there is so much surrounding them. They do crop up in various kind of religions and beliefs across the world. But whatever you feel about them, they are, I think, such a, a beautiful an iconic bird certainly for us here in the uk so definitely one to be loved yeah they're the sort of animal that someone that's not interested in nature would pay attention to if they saw it like a kingfisher or an otter i guess and it's probably the one that people would be like oh that's a barn owl yeah they actually know that one they might not even know much about birds at all or much about wildlife but the majority of people i i would guess could probably identify a barn owl my daughter certainly could but she's had one sat on her shoulder at school the other day and she's your daughter yeah that's that as well i suppose (laughs) all right well i think that's it from us this time we've got a nice episode on something planty planned for the next one haven't we we have yes research is currently being conducted it's one of my favorite flowers again and it's out at the moment right see you next time guys all right take care everyone bye bye Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.